Welcome, and thanks for joining us. My name is Samuel Sesha, Director of the Museum of Colour, and your host for this series, My Words Donations. As part of the My Words exhibition at the Museum of Colour, we have invited a number of poets to donate objects to our digital collection. These are items that have a real significance to them and their creative journeys. This series is a chance to hear the stories behind those donations. And coming up, we'll be talking to Dean Atter. Hello, my name is Dean Atter. I'm a poet and author. I have written two poetry collections called I'm Nobody's Nigger and There Is Still Love Here and two young adult novels called The Black Flamingo and Only on the Weekends. As well as writing and performing my work, I go into schools and do workshops and yeah, really love using poetry as a way of helping people express themselves because it did so much for me in that area. So Dean, can you tell me how you would actually describe your work? And when I say your work in this instance, I do mean your poetry. How would you describe it? My poetry is very frank, um, very heartfelt. I try and be really accessible with my kind of language, vocabulary, my clarity when I speak and perform my work as well. I find that poetry has been my way of expressing myself to do with my identity in particular, being mixed race, Greek, Cypriot and Jamaican. I draw from both cultures for my work, being raised in Britain. I draw from British literary tradition and poetry and authors. And also being gay, I find that that's something that I tend to write about because I grew up where it wasn't talked about. I grew up under Section 28 where schools couldn't have LGBT books, couldn't encourage or support LGBT people in the way that they needed. Teachers couldn't be out. And so that was in place throughout my whole school career. It was a piece of government legislation that really held us back from feeling accepted in society, I feel. And it's one of the reasons I'm a patron of LGBT History Month, um, which happens every February. And it's one of the reasons I'm really open about my sexuality and write about it proudly in my poems and in my novels, which are novels in verse. So they are also poetry too. So in those books, I have gay protagonists, black gay protagonists in particular. And in my poetry, I don't shy away from writing about my relationships or my feelings, especially to do with my sexuality. So yeah, my poetry is definitely a form of self-expression. But I find by doing that, it encourages others to express themselves, whether it's to do with their ethnicity, their sexuality, anything else to do with their identity or kind of feeling different from the mainstream. And so many of us are different and I like to celebrate difference in my writing as well. So I don't want to say this in a way that sounds patronising and I think I might have already said it to you, but I just want to thank you because it cannot be underestimated how important it is for you to do what you do and the way you do it. And I did recently gift one of your books to a young family member and I was just so glad that I was able to do that because there was nothing like that there in the past and I think it is important to acknowledge that that you really are breaking ground this is not something that existed in the 60s and 70s and 80s or even the 90s so thanks for that but let's talk more about you so you've talked about how this is how you express yourself but when did you know this is actually 
who you are and what you're going to do and how you're going to make your living. So as a teenager, I wrote poems really privately, um, dealing with a lot of the things I've mentioned, writing about my sexuality, writing about being mixed race and not being sure where I fitted in, writing about my dad not being around, which is something that is a theme to date in my poetry and my fiction. So I kind of kept a lot of things private, but I also used that to kind of understand how I felt about those things. And then in my kind of late teens, so like 16, 17, I started showing few poems to friends and they could relate or they liked what I'd written or they were like yeah impressed in some way with me putting down my feelings so clearly and then I was encouraged by friends to go to open mic nights and that was really where it all began I went to an open mic night at the poetry cafe in London's Covent Garden I went to one at Kensington Library I went to one in Brixton's Bug Bar. I don't know if it's called that anymore, but like I went everywhere I could find an open mic night and read my poetry aloud. And I found my people, you know, my friends encouraged me, but then these strangers giving me support and encouragement and then giving me flyers to come along to their next night and adding me on MySpace or whatever it was. Like I just started really feeling emboldened to share what I had to say because it wasn't just my friends that liked it. It was all these random people I met at these nights that became over time friends and mentors and supporters of my work. And yeah, the internet was kind of a thing that I was yeah getting into using. So I did create, like I said, a MySpace page and put some of my poetry up there. I did start sharing my work online quite early and I did get an opportunity when I was 18 to go on BBC Radio 4 on a show called Bespoken Word. And that was the time when I was introduced to the nation on Radio 4 as a young poet. And, you know, my mum's friends from church heard this and they were like, we heard this on on the radio. And that was just really exciting because these are people I intentionally didn't <laughs> tell about what I was writing because I wasn't sure how it would go down. But they heard it and they liked it. And my mum felt proud that they'd commented on it. And yeah, I was then on a poet. So when I went to university at 18, I went and introduced myself to people as a poet. And I went to the campus poetry nights and and said, hey, I'm Dean, I'm a poet. And I bounced around campus ready to give someone a poem at a house party or whoever asked for a poem, I'd do it like on the spot. So I was super confident from 18 onwards, really, to call myself a poet. And I think it was the spoken word open mic nights and it was that early opportunity to go on Radio 4 and that was just a radio producer saw me at one of those open mic nights a producer called Graham Frost so I'm really grateful for those opportunities and kind of I haven't looked back since. I love it I absolutely (laughs) love it and also just listening to you talking about those early open mics and just what it gave you oh it's just joyful fantastic and love the confidence so we've actually asked you to donate some things to Museum of Colour to our collection but before we start talking about what you've donated it'd be really good to hear a little bit about your relationship with museums so what's Mm. your relationship with museums like and follow up what does it feel like to be in one I have a good relationship with museums when I was a child we were members of the Natural History Museum and I think that was before it was free. I can't remember now but my mum had a membership for us and there was a members room you could go to and because I went to primary school in Kensington we weren't far from the museum there in South Kent so 
we'd go after school a lot of days and sometimes I'd look around the galleries and sometimes we'd just go to the members room and I'd do my homework there and just hang out there and it was just really special. I love dinosaurs, I love ancient Egypt. I remember when I was a teenager going to Egypt and going to see museums there in Cairo and seeing Tutankhamun's coffin and seeing the mummies and things like that. So I I love linking myself to history or, or getting to see things from history, whether that's like dinosaur fossils or mummies. But I also love museums that relate to people in particular, like Keats House Museum is one that I've spent a lot of time in. I've been a Keats House poet since 2012 and we've done lots of residencies there put on events there written in response to John Keats's work and it's a funny one because it wasn't actually a house he owned it was a house he was just staying at he didn't have his own house but he's also got Keats Shelley house in Rome and I've been there because of the connection with Keats house in London and yeah performed over in Rome and so I've always found that museums have been a great place to find inspiration to find connection also to write in response to artefacts and exhibitions. I'd say the same with art galleries too. I love writing in response to artworks. And I think there's a crossover really between museums and art galleries, because for the most part, the art isn't just created. So it's already the moment it's put on a wall becomes part of history and is being archived. And so much more is in a museum and gallery archive than is even on the walls, which I think is really incredible. So I see also being a published writer as a form of like archiving your work as well, because I feel like I've had a decade of performing from age 18 to 28 before I actually published my first book. And then suddenly I could create an archive of that work I'd worked on in that first decade and every book since so I'm on my fourth book now and I feel like yeah that's creating my own archive and so I'm really proud of each book and kind of I can see my progression and growth in those things you know looking at the themes that kind of carry on throughout but like writing style might change and the emphasis on certain things changes so yeah I I love museums and I see that whether I'm actually on the walls or not I feel like I'm welcome in those spaces and and I can do with the inspiration and the information what I wish you know and I I often find myself wandering around a museum and gallery when I go abroad not because I want to see a particular exhibition but just because I find them lovely spaces to be in familiar even in an unfamiliar country I find a museum and gallery is a, a place where I feel like I know what to do here. You just walk around and have a look. <laughs> it is a lovely thing, isn't it? So, you know, you can be in another country and you might not speak the language or anything like that, but when you are in a space like that, mm. the language is different. It's what's on the walls. It's what's on the plinth. It's what, do you know what I mean? It gives you another way of sort of being in the space. It's, um, yeah. no, that's lovely. Like I lived in Glasgow for, you know, the past three years and we've got the Burrell collection there, which is a, a great kind of really diverse collection of artefacts. And there's this wonderful Rodin sculpture of a naked man. And I saw it and I just was very captivated by it. And then went with my partner to Paris and went to a gallery there and I saw an almost identical Rodin sculpture. And I just felt like suddenly I was connected through this piece of art in these two different countries. And I think that's really special as well. I think it's great when you see someone's work all in one place dedicated to them, but it's really fascinating when you go to different museums or galleries and find artefacts like dotted around, which is also problematic in a way when you kind of like, I went to the British Museum and I saw 
some of the things that should be on the plimps in the Acropolis Museum in Athens. And so that was really interesting to see the commentary between two museums where there's works that maybe they want back in one particular country, but we've got them here in Britain. And I think that's also a really fascinating, really live debate and speaks to our history being present with us, that there's these debates about where things should should be, where they should belong and where they'll be best kept safe. I think that's really interesting as well. But I think you're having an online museum breaks down a lot of those barriers and makes things accessible. You don't have to go to a physical place to see them. And I think that's really wonderful that we can have that. And I think during COVID as well, being able to view a lot more exhibitions via virtual tours of galleries which they could have made available before but they decided to do now and hopefully they will stay up in perpetuity you know but I think that is really wonderful as well to make museums and galleries accessible online is is super important. Absolutely but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you the question because you've brought it up about having empty plinths in one country with artifacts that are in this country and yes it is and we are recording this in where are we now October 2022 for anybody who's listening to this maybe many years in the future but it is a very live debate and I just wondered if you have any thoughts on it. I think where a gallery or a country is asking for their things back, I think it's on us with the resources maybe to to make sure those things are conserved well, to come up with a plan for how to do that. You know, I, I remember doing poetry workshops in the Tower of London with the Koinor diamond at the centre of it and the young people, you know, learning how this came into possession of the the royal family and and that it has been wanted back for a long time by India and I think within the space of the Tower of London to write poetry kind of critiquing that and saying give it back and I think it's interesting this debate happens and we're allowed to talk about whether things should be returned or what the ethics are but then the action is missing <laughs> like we're allowed to have the debate and and now what you've you've heard all the opinions and people may have come up with plans how things can be returned but still it's a very slow process so yeah whether it's um things missing from the Acropolis or Benin bronzes or, or the Koinor diamond, I think even if it's a 10-year, 20-year plan, there should be a plan for how to return things, definitely. Yeah, there's a nice bit of strategy work there for someone. Now let's talk about what you're going to donate. Tell us what it is, why you want to donate it, why you'd like to share it. Okay, so I have a copy of The Black Flamingo, my first YA novel in verse. The Black Flamingo is actually my second book, but it is the book that has made the most waves, I think, and also the book that I felt I was destined to write. It is a fairy tale version of my own childhood. It's about a mixed race boy who's Greek, Cypriot and Jamaican. It's about him coming out as gay and then later on finding his voice through poetry and then finding even more confidence through doing drag performance. And I've done all those things. And it was just really fun to put that into a character and into a book for teenagers. Because as I said, growing up, having Section 28 in place all the way through my school career, there were no books like this. And so I was writing the book I would have needed when I was a young person. And so I'm so glad that young people get to read and enjoy this book. So that's why I've donated it because it's a book that I'm just the most proud of. And I think 
as many books as I write, I think this book was pivotal for me because it's just such a beautiful reimagining of my childhood. And that's a real gift to have as a writer, to be able to just like go back and rework some things and, and make it as you wished it had been in so many ways. So I think that's why I've donated it. And it's always the book that I just smile at because it's so beautiful to look at as well. The cover, gloriously designed by Anshika Kalor. And also the quote on the front from Mallory Blackman, the legend that is Mallory Blackman, has said of this book, I loved every word. So, <laughs> you know, what can you say to that? Absolutely. <laughs> so what else are you putting in our collection, Dean? I have also donated an evil eye. For those that haven't seen an evil eye, it's the blue eye often made of glass with a white and then a lighter blue and then a black pupil. Mine is made of glass and it's on a blue string and it is one that hangs in my flat. And we've also got several others hanging up. And I've also got the evil eye on my phone case. When I was younger, I had a necklace and then bracelets of it. And you usually give it to someone else for protection. And so mine were gifted by family members throughout my life. And it's coming from the Greek Cypriot side of my family. But you find it across many cultures. And it's thought to date back to the Eye of Horus from ancient Egypt. So that is an image or a, a symbol that connects very many cultures. And it's just really lovely whenever I see it, I think, oh, we're from completely different countries, but we share this symbol of protection. And people use it a lot as an emoji on social media as well. Whenever they post good news, they post the evil eye to keep away the haters <laughs> or the people that will be looking on with envy. But I think, yeah, it has many uses. And I recently went to a museum of witchcraft and magic in Cornwall and they had the evil eye there. And I, I found that really interesting because I never thought of it as, as witchcraft or magic, but I can see how some would see it that way because it's you know basically a protection symbol like a like a horseshoe so for me it just holds a lot of meaning and I'm not religious but it's the one thing that I've kind of kept as a symbolic representation of being protected in some way and so that's why I chose the evil eye I love that. And can I just say before you share the next item that I'm really hoping that having an evil eye in our collection will protect us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm sure we've got a few haters hating on this museum, but oh well. <laughs> Absolutely, we're protected. All right, so what's the next item? The next item is a group of face masks that I acquired during the first two years of the COVID pandemic. And they were, you know, originally we had very plain medical masks that my partner was getting from the hospital that he was working in at the time. So my partner is a doctor. And so it was a scary time. At the beginning of the pandemic, it was unclear why, you know, a lot of people of colour were dying of COVID. And, you know, it then became clearer that it was more to do with social and economic factors and nothing genetic to do with it. But at the very beginning, we had no idea. And so COVID was very scary for so many people. 
and still remains a huge concern globally and in this country. And I very much wore a face mask when it was mandated and beyond. And also I was living in Scotland and so the rules were a bit stricter than in England. And so it was quite interesting to see that, you know, in Scotland we all kept on wearing the mask for a very long time. And in England they came off as soon as the government said you don't have to anymore. But beyond the medical and the the fear factor and the looking after one another part of these masks, there was also the self-expression that I felt I wanted to put into masks. So I've got one which has a rainbow flag on it because I like wearing rainbow flags. I like something that symbolises that I'm gay or part of the LGBT community. I've got rainbows on a number of bags and clothes and badges and so wearing a rainbow face mask felt really empowering. I, I've got another with the Paisley pattern, which, you know, historically, actually, it's from Paisley in Scotland, but also it was stolen from India. So it's quite a contentious pattern, actually, the, the Paisley pattern. But I did wear it. And the others are colourful and glittering. And then there's a plain black one as well. But yeah, the self-expression. And I'm I'm a very talkative person, as as you can tell here in this podcast. But having your face covered, I'm also a very smiley person and not being able to smile at people or just show my my face. I felt like I needed another way to brighten up my face. And so all the bright and colourful face masks were, were something that I really enjoyed wearing. I still was smizing, smiling with my eyes so that people could see I was like a happy, friendly person. But I did feel a bit shut off from the world wearing masks. So the colourful masks helped me put some of my personality right there on my face in place of my smile. (laughs) Brilliant. Brilliant. Yes. Now, I think a lot of people felt like that and the ability to express yourself through the face covering. Mm. um, Yeah. It's a fantastic choice and a lovely thing to have in the collection. We have lots of protection from your collection. So you have one last donation that you're going to make for us and that's your poem. So the poem I am going to read for you for the Museum of Colour is from the Black Flamingo and it is a poem called I Come From. I've chosen this poem because I get asked a lot the question where are you from and this is the way I chose to respond to it and it also at the end mentions being in a book and I think for me the opportunity to publish a book and to be archived in libraries and bookshops and people's homes is just uh, an incredible thing and I don't take it for granted. And so that is what I mean at the end when the poem mentions making it into a book. I come from, I come from shepherd's pie and Sunday roast, jerk chicken and stuffed vine leaves. I come from traveling through my taste buds, but loving where I live. I come from a home, that some would call broken. I come from DIY that never got done. I come from waiting by the phone for him to call. I come from waving the white flag to loneliness. I come from the rainbow flag and the Union Jack. I come from a British passport and an ever ready suitcase. I come from jet fuel and fresh coconut water. I come from crossing oceans to find myself. I come from deep issues and shallow solutions. I come from a limited vocabulary, but an unrestricted imagination. I come from a decent education and a marvellous mother. I come from being given permission to dream, but choosing to wake up instead. I come from wherever I lay my head. 
I come from unanswered questions and unread books, unnoticed effort and undelivered apologies and thanks. I come from who I trust and who I have left. I come from last year and last year and I don't notice how I've changed. I come from looking in the mirror and looking online to find myself. I come from stories, myths, legends and folk tales. I come from lullabies and pop songs, hip-hop and poetry. I come from griots, grandmothers and her storytellers. I come from published words and strangers' smiles. I come from my own pen, but I see people torn apart like paper, each a story or a poem that never made it into a book. Thank you to Dean Atter for being part of our exhibition and donating to the Museum of Colour. To view the donations photographed by Sharon Wallace and the portraits by Derek Kakembo, head to www.museumofcolour.org.uk where you can explore the rest of the My Words exhibition and discover our growing digital collection. My Words Donations is presented by me, Samanwar Sesha, and is produced by Stella Sabin for the Museum of Colour. Further episodes of this series are available across all podcast platforms where you can also listen to our previous project, Respect Due. The music you have heard in this series is by the fabulous Randolph Matthews. You can listen to more of his work at www.randolphmatthews.com. My Words is supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund, Arts Council England and the Foyle Foundation. Museum of Colour is incubated at People's Palace Projects, based at Queen Mary University, London. Thank you for listening.